Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy's under the weather today, so it'll just be moi. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636DA, turnkey.pro, text line. The story that we brought you first yesterday morning out of York High School in Elmhurst. The video that uh, I subsequently posted, I got from a concerned parent that uh, went viral, that got picked up by other news outlets, including the fake news of the Chicago Press Corps of a boy with Down syndrome, who's a student at York High School, being uh, attacked by fellow students. And uh, the reaction was pretty swift. This sort of broke over the weekend, but I hadn't gotten profile until we brought it to you, and then posted it online here at Chicago's Morning Answer. I'm sure everybody was dutiful, especially in the Chicago Press Corps, in providing citation if they used the video. And interestingly, part of the fake news that is Chicago. ABC7 picked it up. Elmhurst High School students allegedly seen on video bullying classmate with special needs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Elmhurst Police has opened an investigation into the case. We met, we, they mentioned the online petition that we brought to you yesterday that was posted by a student suggesting there were other such incidents like this, although no details were given. Uh, but this part I wanted to seize upon. ABC7 is not showing the video due to its disturbing nature, but it shows the boy getting pushed onto the floor of a school bathroom and being verbally attacked. You know, we the audio doesn't work for radio, but the video does work, and that's why it went viral. ABC7 is not showing the video due to its disturbing nature. Can't handle it. Adults can't handle it. I read that, and it reminded me of the Scream ad that I did via my Super PAC during the governor's race. The woman in Lakeview who was walking on a sidewalk on a Weekend, sunny weekend afternoon, car stops in the middle of the street, three assailants run and attack her, and she screams. We talked about it. I'm sure a lot of you saw it and got a lot of notoriety because everybody was so offended by the ad. Really. Offended by the ad. Uh, too disturbing is the video out of York High School. We just can't bring ourselves to look at what we've become in so many respects, can we? Look away. It's too disturbing. Look away. I don't want to hear that. 
I remember I got an email from some random person like a, on Facebook uh, taking me to task for that Scream ad. I'm not going to vote for your guy. I'm voting against Darren Bailey because you ran this ad. I'm like, oh, okay, you, you didn't like the ad. So let me just understand. Who, who do you think you're punishing? You're punishing me? So you don't like seeing what the city of Chicago has become under the political leadership of the city and the state. And anybody who tries to bring attention to it, you're going to punish. How dare you show me what we've become? How dare you show me what I've unleashed? You know, been part of unleashing, at least. I don't want to see it. I'm punishing you. Not the people who, myself included, have presided over the disintegration of civil society. Isn't that interesting? And so it's too disturbing to to uh, run that video, ABC7 says. It's also, it's also too disturbing. You know, we've got to protect everybody, you know, except the victims. Protect everybody except the victims. And so as I suggested yesterday, what happened has happened. What's the first thing that York High School and Elmhurst District 205 did? Erect the wall of silence. Hide behind the arguments of our attorneys advise that we, in the interest of privacy, cannot because of the private disciplinary records of, uh uh-uh, nope, talking to a friend of mine who's really wired in in Elmhurst and has gotten me good information, uh, which I'll share with you momentarily, about the uh, apparent resolution of this matter, at least as the school district is concerned but not as I'm concerned, and I hope others. But uh, the um, the school district you know, takes the position of, right, we can't tell you who it was or what's happening. And to the extent that we announce something, some sort of generic punishment, we won't ascribe it to any particular individuals and so on and so forth. So that's exactly what they've done. Because you have to protect the system. What was the statement from the District 205 superintendent over the weekend? Uh, This doesn't represent our community, blah, blah, blah. Mentioned this yesterday. It's always our community. Protect the community. Protect the institution. Don't protect the victim. But what are you talking about, Dan? We're going to have justice for the victim because the kids are going to be suspended. Disciplinary action will be taken. uh, Part of our zero tolerance processes and so forth. No. Sorry. That's those are weasel processes and weasel words that defend weasel processes and a weaselly system. There's talk today that their students are going to stage a walkout. I think at one o'clock, as I saw reported, I heard rumblings of this yesterday, tweeted about it. Walkout, student walkout. What's the point of that? Walkout for what? To bring attention to who? This is classic. It's such a illustration of what these systems have become. I want everybody to see me opposed to pushing around a kid with Down syndrome. Oh, can we begin the slow clap? This isn't about you. 
It's about the kid who was abused and the kids who abused him and how a system treats attackers and the attacked. This isn't for every random kid and parent of a kid at York High School to walk out of school for the TV cameras with you know homemade signs to show how much they care, allegedly, about uh, kids with special needs or about anti their anti bullying campaigns and all this other noise. This is about the kids who attacked and the kid who was attacked. And so what I understand to be the case, we'll see if the school district confirms it sooner rather than later, is that all of the kids involved got suspended and the main assailant, I assume that means the kid that actually threw the 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 young man with Down syndrome to the floor in the bathroom, if you've seen the video, and if you haven't, go at Dan Proft. I tweeted out yesterday. You can watch it. It's not, it's not too disturbing. I, it's disturbing, but it's not too disturbing for adults to view so that you make an informed decision about what comes next. That's the Chicago press corps treating you like a child. Um, the main perpetrator going back. So all the kids suspended. This is what I understand from somebody who's wired in reliable source uh all the kids suspended the main perpetrator is no longer at york high school the quote i got was he's transferred so that's it right story over the kids got suspended and the main assailant has transferred he's no longer at the school york high school safe again and everything's right with the world wonderfully handled is that right 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line. 646-36DA, turnkey.pro, text line. Matt, Mount Greenwood, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan. I know Amy would be opposed to this, but a couple of thick-neck 17-year-olds ought to beat the shit, beat these guys to a pulp. You know, and then they have to take out their, you know, hate has no home hair signs uh, from their leafy front uh, yards of, of, of Elmer's. It, it sickens me. I saw that video you tweeted. I tweeted a response. It sickens me that this is the type of stuff that is allowed. And believe me, this isn't the first time this kid's been abused. I guarantee. You. I have a special needs niece, and I it hurt me to my heart uh, to see these kids who go home to their parents and you know talk about their lofty goals and their wonderful lives, and they abuse this kid who. Is, is, is almost defenseless, and it, it brought out the 17-year-old in me, and I just wish I walked into that when I was 17 and uh, had the opportunity to help that kid out because, you know what, there's some things that need to be dealt with accordingly and right now and not by these idiots, idiots, school administrators. Thanks I'm just the, pissed off, that's all. Yeah, thanks for the comment. Yeah, right, well, we don't have sheepdogs anymore. We have walkouts as a community. Stand in solidarity. Elmhurst Strong. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. 
Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy's under the weather, so she is not in today. It's just me, but hopefully she'll feel better and be back tomorrow. We're talking about uh, the boy with Down syndrome who was attacked by classmates at York High School in Elmhurst. The video that I posted yesterday that I obtained from a concerned parent that went viral and uh, discussing the school districts, the school and the school district's reaction. As I said before Mike Scott's newscast, I understand it on good authority that the students involved in the attack have been suspended with the main assailant no longer at the school He's transferred is the statement I got from somebody who's wired in in Elmhurst. And my simple question was, is that good enough? Does that resolve the matter? Can we move on now? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. Mary Kay, Western Springs. Hi, good morning, Dan. Um, You know, nobody, (laughs) towns like, Elmhurst don't want to face the reality of what's happening. This this walkout thing you were talking about. Yeah, student walkout uh, scheduled for 1 p.m. today, apparently. Yeah, great. I mean, great. All walk out, hold their signs like you were saying. What the heck? Drawing attention to themselves. Uh, Elmhurst strong. All that stuff is just silly, in my opinion. But um, you talked about the wall of silence in these towns. So I, we, my husband and I were talking about this yesterday morning. He said, "What, whatever happened to heaven? Whatever happened to heaven, Washington? Yeah, we talked about yeah, that. Yeah, whatever yesterday. happened? Nobody knows. Yeah, nobody knows. So I, he, I, he, you know, knows how to do research better than I do. He started looking around all over. Check the patch. He's checked the patch every day. He looks at that patch to see, you know, what's going on. And there's never been mention of heaven, Washington, since that happened." You can't get um, so you can't is, get information on Western Springs Police Department. You can't get information on no. the school. Whatever right. happened, it just goes into a vault, and nobody's uh, right. any the wiser. It, that, and that's the that's way right. that that's the way it appears that Elmer's two hundred five is going to do it as well. To no surprise, exactly. The question is, yeah. is that good enough for people? It's not for me. Um, Brian Buds, you know, he's no longer police chief here. He's moved on to Buffalo Grove, where he's dealing with. <laughs> You know, that murder-suicide that happened, you know, um, so he's on the different horrible things that are happening in our society, which are, you know, that's, I mean, what's happening to our society on a whole? That's that's the big question, in, in my opinion. It's like, what, what is happening and how can we turn the 
needle back to something more, um, I don't know, normal. I mean, what the heck is normal? Is this, is this the way children are being raised? If that was my kid, I would be mortified and seriously considering being, a, you know, my parental um, abilities, you know, I mean, and transfer the kid, transferred. Thanks for the call, Mary Kate. So here's the, well, Dan Vosnos sort of is channeling my view on this. Dan Vosnos is the executive director of One Chance Illinois. Um, and One Chance Illinois focuses on children with unique abilities and providing scholarships to help children with unique abilities get into a school that properly serves their unique abilities, since so many school systems do not, even if you have an IEP, individual education plan, because you have unique abilities. He uh, put out a press release yesterday, and good for him, because a lot of these organizations won't take stands, anything controversial. Oh, I don't want to offend anybody. Uh, i got to middle this. Uh, I want to be friends to the public schools while I'm pr- 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 uh, pushing a school choice program and so on and so forth. Don't want to offend the unions. Don't want to offend the political power structure in the burbs or the city or the state. Uh, well, that's not his position. Dan Vosnos writing, as a father of a son with Down syndrome, I take this very personally. It's horrifying that the perpetrators acted in such a cruel manner and equally malicious that bystanders stood by laughing as it happened. These boys and their parents need to come forward and make amends to this child and to the larger community of children living with Down syndrome. Exactly. That's my view. It seemed to me this is very simple, and I'm not a parent, but sure many of you many of you listening clearly are so feel free to chime in and see if you with whether you agree or disagree this isn't about walkouts it's not about lawyers those kids are captured on that video thanks to one of these cretins videoing what they did so everybody knows who they are already at that school for certain and will know and that includes the kid who apparently transferred. You think that this isn't going to follow him to the next school in the area? Or even if he moves out of the area? It seems to me that parents and peers shouldn't be walking out and making a spectacle of themselves. They should be telling these kids and moms and dads telling their kids who are involved here. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to own what you did. You're going to come forward. You're going to say, I was a part of this. You're going to admit what you did. You're going to apologize to that boy that you hurt. You're going to make amends the best you can. You're going to take the condemnation. You're going to take the punishment that's meted out by the school as well as here at home and maybe by police. And um, you're going to learn to be a man since apparently you're not one yet because men don't behave the way that you did. How about that? No lawyers, not even necessarily any police, although clearly you could argue this is a police matter. But parents and no, just parents, not superintendents. Parents and peers, irrespective of 
what the administration will do, what the police will do. You did this thing, and the only way you're going to learn from what you did is not for us to run, is not for us to hide behind administration officials hiding behind lawyers. It's not to transfer you and hope it goes away, doesn't follow you and us. It's to say, this isn't who we are as a family. We're a stand-up family. We have a family member that did something terrible, and that family member is going to be held to account for it. How about that message to the community, to the school, to the school district, to other schools and school districts? Wouldn't that be refreshing for a change? Rich, Indian Head Park. Yes, good morning, Dan. The reason why they don't do anything about these uh, incidents that happen is they don't want to shine a bad light on uh, on their schools. Instead of uh, punishing these people that are doing this, they try to sweep it under the rug. And then when they get caught, then they're saying, oh, well, we're doing this and we're going to do that. This is after the fact. They need to deal with this stuff when it happens. So they... Uh, so they don't have these incidents happening uh, more and more frequently. And until they do that, it's going to continue to happen. Have a Thanks good- for the call, Rich. I appreciate it. Yeah, is this shining a good light on York? Uh, is there a lot of people cheering the way that they've handled this? How about those kids that perpetrated it? You think that uh, hiding behind the administration and lawyers running away to another school, that teaches them a lesson? You know, if uh, these kids came forward and expressed contrition and made amends to that kid that they pushed around, I'd say, okay, you know, we're all stupid teenagers once. They did, did a, a, a terrible thing, egregious behavior, but they're owning it. They can grow into men. They can, we, can get, we can all get past this. Maybe they'll be a little bit better understanding through – uh, contrition and uh, and making amends, reconciliation with the kid that they harmed about uh, kids like him with unique abilities, special needs kids. I mean, it could be a, a learning moment across the board. Or we could just hide behind the walls of silence that bureaucracies and lawyers erect for us. And you think that's going to make it better? That's going to enhance the quality of our civilization. Elmhurst Strong. We'll see. Chris in Hampshire. Hi. I, my question is really simple. Why, why are we not trying this or speaking about this in terms of a hate crime and bringing all that has to bear on this? If, if this is the way our society is supposed to be going meet out what is supposed to be meted. Yeah, thanks for the call, Chris. I mean, I hear that, but, you know, I don't want our society to go that way. We have uh, all these adults, they, they can't they can't bring themselves to do the right thing. We've so outsourced our morality to administ- school administrators and lawyers. Talk about a sad commentary, and then you wonder why we are uh, reaping what we've sown. You can't, or you can't believe that this is reaping what we've sown. Of course it is. Of course it is. Even the kids, even the teenagers themselves, 
you know, you would hope that maybe one of them would see what they did, reflect upon what they did, would get see the reaction, and would step up himself to say, I don't want to run from this. I'm going to stand and take my medicine because I did something wrong. They know they did something wrong, I'm sure, at least some of them. So now is the opportunity to do something right. I mean, you know, I... I the, the moral scorn on social media, it's not impressive. Uh, nobody wants these kids, you know, uh, uh, hung in the public square, for goodness sakes. What the, the cry, the scorn, is because nobody gets held to account for anything. Depending, you know, depending on the system you're in and who your parents are and what resources you have and what your identitarian score is and all those other things. And so it just strips away everyone's humanity. And it leads people to act and react more vociferously, more aggressively than they otherwise would because there's such frustration that you can't have a simple recognition of right and wrong you can't have an act of contrition done by those who committed the wrong, a reconciliation with the wronged party. We can't look at this simply as uh, attackers and a victim. It has to be about everybody else but them. You want to understand what commentary on society this is. That's That, to me, is the commentary. The... The negative composite of that would be individual action at the interpersonal level to make a wrong as right as you can make it and chart a better course for all parties involved going forward. But we don't want to do that. We want to protect the kids, you know, permanent record. We want to shield them from online harassment or whatever the phrase is. The last thing we want to do is raise them to be men. Jim in Crown Point. You know, real funny, these schools are so quick to shut it down because of COVID. But when there's a real tragedy in front of them, they fold like an accordion. Kids today, there's no consequences for action. When I was young, my dad told us, home before dark. One time I foolishly stayed out late. I got whipped with a belt. That's the only time he whipped me. I realized there was consequences. These kids, I would put them all in orange uh, prison suits and make them wear them for a week and let everybody ostracize them, and then they could see how it is. Yeah. I mean, I th- thanks for the call. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think you need to go over the top depending on how they want to handle it. That's sort of my point. And there are consequences. What there isn't is judgment. There's a difference. Consequences, all these schools have zero tolerance policies. If you make a gun with your index finger and thumb, you're, you're expelled. So there, there are consequences, depending on what you do, but there's not judgment. There's no adults saying this is a moral code by which we, that we, that we abide in this place. You're going to do these things. 
you're going to buy these rules. You're going to color inside these lines. And if you don't, there'll be swift action. And we're going to teach you that we're not even going to need to bring the swift action because you're going to know and you're going to own it when you color outside those lines. Because we're going to we're in the the business of character formation in addition to social and uh, intellectual emotional development. Character formation, which is frankly at the core of those other three buckets that everybody likes to talk about in the context of K-12, social, emotional learning, and yeah, character development. Where's that part of the curriculum? It was when I was in school, and I was fortunate, and a lot of other schools, public and private. It seems to be lacking in both now. Uh, Tom, Blue Island. Hey, good morning, Dan. Uh, I just wanted to follow up on what Mary Kay said. She asked when this ends. This took a generation or two to get to this point. And unfortunately, it's probably going to take that long to get out of this point. Uh, this is this is this is a foundation that's been dug for a long time. And I, I, kind of following up on what the last caller said, you know, my dad laid a hand on me one time. One backhand slap when I was like seven or eight years old, but I knew darn well not to mess with that guy. And I can't imagine going home and having been either the mope, any of them. There's no white, they're, they're, not, they're all as equally guilty, but being one of the guys that was standing around watching it and doing nothing to stop it, or the guy filming it, I'd, I'd rather live in the street, Dan, than go <laughs> home and face that guy. Thanks for the call, Tom. Yeah, how many people's uh, parents would have transferred them after? after uh, participating in something like they participated in. Uh, my dad wouldn't have transferred me. First of all, he was paying for my school, so it, uh, the hell you're going anywhere. I paid for this. You're staying. Come whatever may come. As long as they'll have you, you're going to be there because I paid for it, and you're going to figure out how to make it right. That would have been the conversation. And it wouldn't have been much of a conversation. It would have been a monologue. Uh, Kevin, Austin, Texas. Dan, thanks for uh, taking my call. So um, I have a daughter who has Down syndrome. Uh, 14, she'll be 15. When I saw this, I was so frustrated because we found out prenatally. And you put in all this time uh, to work on acceptance and you go to uh, school meetings for the, you know, IEP, uh, you know, going to the yard and all that type of thing. And you work as hard as you can. And what happens is these schools get so defensive and afraid, they're not getting what the student, what your child needs. And another thing that I would want for this kid is I would want him to, first of all, the the kid who pushed the kid and everybody else, to apologize one-on-one. And after that, part of their punishment, they donate time at a place like Misericordia or something like that. Or if it's they got to go on Saturdays, they've got that you know to work with the uh, yeah. other kids with Down syndrome at Hearts yeah. Flower Bakery, yep. you know, so they can understand what they did instead of just running away. And then maybe they might play the sheep. May they might be the sheepdogs in the future. They might be the ones that protected because they realize that these kids with Down syndrome, um, my daughter obviously is especially better than most, are the, some of the funniest, most compassionate, and kind kids. And the thing is. This boy would probably accept the apology right away. 
Yeah, and, that's ex- that's exactly right. So in, in that moment, so that's that's my point to Kevin. What what what's the best outcome from this terrible situation? It would be yeah. the moment you're describing where the the kids who uh who who attacked him, and and that kid come together and they reconcile and. Uh, especially, you know, the kids who attacked him are better for it because I, this yeah. is I mean, I say this all the time is that people with unique abilities, they're like a mirror. It's a mirror to who we are as a civilization. And, and right now, Elmhurst doesn't like what's looking back at them. Do no, they? And, and part of what they don't like is half of them probably would like this if their child was uh, aborted. I mean, they, they can't stand it. Maybe I'm going over the line on that, but it just drives me nuts. If 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 you're going to have compassion for these kids, you, you have to have compassion for the kids who did this because they're stupid. But let, let them learn from it. Don't let, don't let them run away from it. And, mm-hmm. the, and the school has to stand up. Thanks stand- for the call. Thanks for the call, Kevin. Appreciate it. Uh, Craig Mount Greenwood. Hey Dan, thanks for taking my call, and uh, hope Amy has a quick recovery there. Yeah, this is uh, this is emblematic of exactly what's going on with uh, the leftists uh, um, controlling our schools and being, uh, you know, uh, the, the whole the whole mood and everything that goes on. Not only with the school too; it's it's the uh, the uh, media. How the media basically uh, basically has that leftist bent. It's got there's a meanness and uh, basically uh, like a um, mm. a uh, the kids are raised with uh, with a, um, a something missing. Well, I would say what's missing is uh, a, a creator, God, and a savior, and that is missing, especially around this season to realize that. But Thanks for the call, this. Craig. We're up against the clock. I appreciate the call. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy's under the weather, so she's out today. Hopefully back tomorrow. Just me. We're talking about uh, and have been talking about the case of the boy with Down syndrome who was attacked in a bathroom at York High School and what is going to come of those who perpetrated the attack on him. How is the school district going to handle it? How are the parents going to handle it? How are the perpetrators going to handle it? How are the police potentially going to handle it? Elmhurst Police apparently investigating. What does it say about um, where we are? 
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. How's a school board going to handle? School board. School board elections. Spring. Uh, a few members of Elmhurst District 205 are up for re-election. Has anybody heard or seen from any school board member? School board president, Kara Caforio? No? You know, they're the elected representatives of the people, including, and they have, you know, fiduciary responsibilities as school board members. But they also have responsibilities to the, well, in addition to financial responsibilities, they have other responsibilities to the public as elected officials, don't they? Anybody from the school board going to chime in on this? Handling of it? You just uh, you just uh, sit and uh, speak at the direction of the superintendent and the bureaucrats, the teachers' union. Remember, these are all teachers' union-run schools, and it's usually reflected on the school board too. Kara Caforio, president. Christopher Kozinski, vice president. He's up in twenty-three. Courtney Troutman, she's up in twenty-three. Athena Arvanitis, Jim Collins, Beth Hosler, she's up in 23. Karen Stufen, she's up in 23. Anybody heard from any of them? No? I haven't seen any comments publicly. I mean, maybe on whatever the local next door apps and things like that. I don't know. I don't know. Be interesting for the school board to comment on this. They're they going to hide behind the lawyers, too? That the administrator's uh, right point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about what have we become, what society and the kids these days sort of discussions. Again, let's not be Pollyannish here. Let's not pretend that back when we were all in school at various times over the last few generations that there were not bad actions, uh, habitual bad actors. Of course there were. The human condition doesn't change that much. It seems to me it's not what, uh, what exists has, that has always existed. It's what doesn't exist as much that used to exist. There's always been bad actors and bad actions. The question is, are there stand-up individuals who are going to demand, in some cases, impose accountability on bad actors for their bad actions? That, to me, is where we're starting to veer away from previous generations where these things were important. You know, part of it is the nature of the family, clearly. But we're talking about Elmhurst bunch of white honkies. So what's the problem? Hmm. <laughs> what has become of uh, these urbane, wealthy suburbs like Elmhurst? Hmm. Certainly a commentary on some of these communities, isn't it? That look real purdy from the outside. Real purdy. Since the boy who was attacked is uh, K- 
kid with unique abilities is Down syndrome. I thought um, just to expand the conversation because these uh, Cretans who attacked him have given us an unintentional opportunity to talk about how we treat people with unique abilities in this state in particular. So I've been fortunate to be involved with um, nonprofits that serve uh, communities whose clients are people with unique abilities, like Envision, I've mentioned on the show before. And so I've learned a lot. And it's been eye-opening and interesting and uh, uh, rewarding and frustrating, all of those things, in part because Illinois is so poor. We as a state are so poor. It's a story I've mentioned many times over the years I've been on the radio. So bad in keeping our promises to families with a family member with developmental or intellectual disabilities or unique abilities if you prefer. For many years, we were 51st out of 50 in providing services to those individuals behind even the District of Columbia. You know, now we've shot all the way up to like the high 40s. It's uh, awful. And people leave the state for other states that provide better services. There's a lot of families who've left, not for taxes, not for weather, but to go from here to Wisconsin, for example, because they have a family member with unique abilities, and Wisconsin's, uh, the state government there, keeps their promises. We don't here. As uh, civilized and sophisticated as we are in Chicagoland, enlightened as we are to have a supermajority of Democrats and Democrat socialists lording over all of the political institutions possessing all the government power in this state. And what has it produced? And I mean, I blame Republicans, too, but let's start with who's actually in charge. What has it produced? These are compassionate. Hate has no home here. The least of my brother socialists, right? And how's it going? It's funny because most of the social service community is left. So on the Envision board, it's a question I ask a lot because, you know, there are most of most of the people in the organization certainly don't share my political philosophy. And that's fine. I, that's not why I'm involved. But uh, but it is to say, well, how's it going? I don't get it. These are the best people. These are the people who are going to keep their promises. These are the people aligned with you. Everything is about uh, uh, providing services mainstreaming people with unique abilities, and yet I don't see it happening. Why? Hmm. Maybe it's just a priority they say they have that they don't really have. Could that be? Yeah. Stunning, I know, but uh, you'd be surprised how few people connect those dots. And since Kevin from Austin, Texas, mentioned the abortion issue, with respect to uh, babies with Down, babies with Down syndrome, um, and the incidence of aborting babies who test positive in the womb for Down syndrome. I thought I'd bring back our friend Frank Stevens. We played him on the show every now and again over the years. 
I thought it was some of the most powerful, thoughtful testimony that perhaps has ever been presented to a congressional committee. Frank Stevens is a bit of an actor, um, and he's an advocate for people like him who have Down syndrome. And he testified in 2017, so now this is five years ago, before a congressional committee advocating for the funding of research into Down syndrome. And here's what he said. And members of the, 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 of the, of the committee... Just so there, there, there is no confusion, let me say that I, I am not a, a, a research scientist. <laughs> However, no one knows more about life with Down syndrome than, than, than I do. Whatever, whatever you learn, Today, please remember this. I am a man with Down syndrome, and my life is worth living. Is there, is there really no place for us in the, the, in the, the, the world? Is there really no place for us in the NIH budget. On a deeply personal note, I cannot tell you how much it means to me that my extra chromosome might lead to the answer to to Alzheimer's. It's likely that that this it's likely that this thief will one day steal my memories my very life from me. This is very hard for me to say, but it has already begun to steal my mom from me. Please think about all those people you love, the way I love my mom. Help us make this difference. If not for me and my mom, then for, then for you and the ones you love. Fund this research. Let's be America, not Iceland or Denmark. Let's pursue answers, not final solutions. Let's be America. Let's make our goal to be Alzheimer's free, not Down syndrome free. Thank you. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey Dot Pro answer line six four six three six DA Turnkey Dot Pro text line. You know it's not just um, services in Illinois, and it's not just the abortion on demand culture here. All nine months, taxpayer funded. Pam Harris. I mean, talk about parents that are heroes. Uh, Pam Harris and other parents took Governor Quinn all the way to the Supreme Court and won. It wasn't that long ago. One of the few programs that actually is effective because it provides a small stipend to parents who provide, who serve as the primary caregiver to their 
uh, family member, child, with uh, unique abilities. You recall this case? There was an effort by the Purple People Beaters at SEIU who are actually in charge of the state and who we all serve while we pretend that we serve people with unique abilities. In an effort by SEIU to unionize parents against their children. Unionize parents of kids with disabilities against their children. Intercede between mom and dad and kid. And Pat Quinn and the same power structure that lords over Illinois today were all in because they serve at the pleasure of the SEIU. Pam Harris and other similarly situated families took him all the way to the Supreme Court and won. What a great day that was, but what a sad commentary on Illinois. And what have we done in the intervening decades since Pam Harris took Pat Quinn and the state to the Supreme Court and won? Double down. Become, became, we have become even more barbaric. And so you think about the political culture in Illinois. And then you're surprised when you see acts of barbarism like you saw in that bathroom at York High School. You see how we say we treat people versus how we actually treat people. How we say we serve people versus how we actually serve people. And then you're surprised that some kids would think it okay to beat up on a kid with Down syndrome. What have his parents and so many other parents done in the last decade in Illinois, in the suburbs, in the well-to-do suburbs in particular? Uh, on which line have they, on which side of the line have they been? Have you been? John and Huntley. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. You know, I weigh in on this, and I talked before about this. You know, our culture of death is just getting to be at the point where it's, it's from womb to tomb. And, um, you know, people may forgive you. They may forgive you if you're wrong, but they will never, ever, ever forgive you if you're right. And this thing started starts with abortion, and <laughs> next up is euthanasia. And it's coming, and that's all i got to say. Our pride is so deep. It is so deep. We can't get out of it. That Thanks for the call, John. Right. That's, I guess we started the show, ABC7, reporting on what happened at York High School because we reported on it here and posted the video, and so they couldn't ignore it, Chicago Press Corps. And others picked up on it, too. We're appreciative of that. The Blaze and, and other outlets picked up on it. ABC7 reporting, we're not going to post the video. It's too disturbing, isn't it, though? Isn't it disturbing? We can't bear to see what we've become. We're in that pocket right on the precipice of civilizational death where we can neither tolerate our vices nor their cures, to borrow from the great Roman historian Livy. Cannot tolerate our vices nor their cures. 
well, the epitaph of civilization, or at least of a, a free society. David Winnetka. Yeah. Hey. Good morning, Dan. Uh, you know how how horrific. I, I feel so sorry for that that, that kid and his parents. And uh, so just a couple quickies um, on bullying. I uh, I came across this reel the other day. Uh, these two high school kids are in a boxing ring, and uh, this one is considerably better than the other. And he lands a perfectly uh, you know shot the left side of the body like a liver shot. And the other kid drops, and the guy that hits him bends down and looks in his face and you know very firmly says. Quit effing with the special needs boxers, and you know something like that is uh, is definitely needed. But one more quickie: I uh, we I got bullied a lot because we you know moved around you know different places. My mom never started me on the same day, but when I went to Lake Forest Deer Path first, you know, I'm walking in and some kid pushes me, and this other kid this other kid turns around and wants to engage. I'm like, nah, nah, you know, I'm, this guy pushed me, blah blah. Well, anyways, we end up engaging, and I was doing okay, but then he slams me into the wall, and hit the back of my head. And this kid, Eric Carlson, I'll never forget his name. He was like a man child. He had a, a five o'clock shadow in you know fifth grade. So <laughs> several months later, we go to this retreat, and they call us to the front. And uh, I think it was to demonstrate, you know, unity and whatever and blah blah blah. And you know, the, the message was, you know, together, Dave and Eric are one, but separately, you know, whatever. So they give Eric uh, two packs of number two pencils because you just can't break them. And uh, anyways, he takes them and he just crushes them in half like effortlessly. <laughs> And the, their whole point just went out the window. It was, it was just a funny moment in time. <laughs> okay. Thanks for the call, David. Uh, Karen Beecher. Good morning. I think I pulled myself together after that. Uh, you played that. Uh, maybe not. But anyway, Dan, um, not to turn this into a Hallmark movie, but where are the alleged Christian and other worship leaders on this? We view the passion of the Christ in uh, churches. We read from the passion. And so they can't use um, violence as an excuse. So I think this upcoming Saturday and Sunday, they should show this video and tell people, hey, you know, this is the season of giving. And instead of leaving your stale box of macaroni and cheese in my food pantry box or uh, putting your lint in your change in the crush. How about we look at this video and you give from your heart. Do a morality check. Where are you on this? Do any of you know anything about this? Look into your own heart. Look into your children's heart. Maybe even your neighbors. I don't know. But where are the religious where are the religious leaders? Yeah, thanks for the call, Karen. Well, uh, yeah, where where are all the people that love the politicians and yes, the um, the uh, TV uh, clergy that love to preen before cameras when it's something like I don't know a minimum wage increase or there was an alleged racial incident that occurred. And everybody is out in force and t- dueling press releases and so on and so forth. And uh, about the only organization I've seen step up here is uh, Dan Vosnos, the executive director for One Chance Illinois. I read his statement. He's the father of a son with Down syndrome. Where's everybody else? As I said, locally, regionally, statewide. They like to comment on everything that happens. Why not this? Hmm. 
Well, who's in charge of the schools? And who's in charge of the state? If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy's off today. She's under the weather, so hopefully she'll feel better and be back tomorrow. Uh, Yesterday, U.S. prosecutors in the Southern District of Manhattan filed criminal charges of wire fraud, wire fraud conspiracy, securities fraud, securities fraud conspiracy, and money laundering against one Sam Bankman-Fried, former crypto golden boy, now crypto goat, and I don't mean greatest of all time. Uh, the implications of these charges against Sam Bankman-Fried, what it says about uh, crypto markets, what it says about effective altruism, uh, what it says about uh, celebrity investing. We'll start there with Jim Urio, our friend who is a Fox business analyst and the proprietor of Brant's Restaurant in Palatine. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. How did you react when uh, the news came over the transom yesterday that SBF had been indicted? Well, I'm glad. And you said something. I mean, if things are too good to be true, they generally are too good to be true. That should be kind of an axiom in everyone's head. I don't know if you saw what what I posted on Twitter yesterday. Because in in 1979, I did have a hairstyle like that. But when I had a hairstyle like that, trusted me with anything valuable so i think that, that should be a rule of thumb too if we can institute that now but here right if you have a if you have a hair if you have a haircut that puts you on the cast of welcome back cotter then don't <laughs> right. put your money with that guy it. yeah okay exactly it. sometimes it's just that easy but the, the point i was going to make and here's what really worries me the most is that i believe this is an, going to be used as an opportunity by the government by the justice system, by the regulators, to step in and think they can, they should be regulating cryptocurrency. Now, this, and that's a, a different argument. I'm not saying they shouldn't or they should, but I'm saying is this is a failure not at all of cryptocurrencies because cryptocurrencies represent decentralization. And this whole thing was a centralization of, of the trading, and it was messed up by, by humans and, and greed and not about the underlying technology itself. But, you know, I mean, they, they look at us in the face and they say, well, you know, we never let a crisis go to waste. And I think that's just a funny, cute thing to say. And what they really mean is they take the shroud and the cloud of chaos and use it to grab powers that in normal times we'd never want them to have. And, and that's what concerns me the most. They're going to do this now and they're going to rip the, or they're going to regulate the hell out of cryptocurrencies, despite the fact that cryptocurrencies are really. And I, again, I'm not even one of these crazy guys who's who's Mr. Bitcoin. But cryptocurrencies are actually somewhat of an antidote from things like this to happen when there's blockchain and transparent, uh, whatever. I I went on out of soapbox there, but yeah, you you know where I feel about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 the SBF thing too is complicated by the fact that he was such a large donor to the Democrat socialist that he was, you know, apparently, and this uh, drew the ire of some of his uh, colleagues slash competitors in the crypto space, Apparently was, you know, trying to influence politicians with campaign cash to regulate crypto, probably in a direction that was favorable to him and perhaps less favorable to competitors. And so 
this is always sort of the prisoner's dilemma in a new market. You're going to have somebody who sees the power and opportunity by sidling up to the government to uh, direct government to protect him and to inflict pain on his competitors. First of all, how dare you suggest that contributions <laughs> yeah. to government officials? How, uh, how dare you? I don't even know if I can continue this. Right. Yeah. No. I know. It's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, it is a faceless accusation. I get it. Yes. Faceless accusation. But let's dig down into it for a second just for fun. Yeah. The, we mean, the things that you're saying complicate the heck out of it. And I, one thing I am so glad about social media and about Twitter in particular is that I think that there is a chance that these kind of things would get would have gotten more swept under the rug, except for the fact that about a thousand people who with tons of followers on social media keep banging this drum. And if that sounds crazy to people, I'll tell you this, the fact that the Federal Reserve was trading futures right before their decisions and nobody knew about it until it came out on social media, that's what forced their hand to stop doing it. So I'm going to say there is a bit of a counterbalance is that I, I, I genuinely believe that outside of everybody scrutinizing the government's every move on this, I think that there was a chance that it just got swept under the rug and they started talking about something else. And now we force their hand and they can't do that. Again, they well, be the opportunist they are. Yeah, well, the, the other thing is, you know, this goes also to Sam Bankman-Fried's strategy of granting all these interviews where, um, you know, I don't think he afforded himself very well in most of the interviews I saw, the Journal and Good Morning America, even Stephanopoulos got the better of him. So how smart is this guy exactly? But... Um, uh, where he tried to walk the line and, you know, make the declarative statements, I never misuse client funds and so forth. But it, so it, on the one hand, it, it was poorly executed, but it may have been sensible. You know, it may be like, look, um, I'm in deep bandini here. Uh, I've got to get out and start to influence the jury pool and make it clear that what happened here was incompetence, not malfeasance, which it seemed to me, I, you know, you read the tea leaves since you're in the markets, you understand what he's trying to say. And, and But it seemed to me he was trying to draw that line and say, hey, this was incompetence. I was asleep at the switch, but it wasn't malfeasance. And things like um, money laundering charges suggest the federal government doesn't believe him. No, and I think that there's absolutely the chance for that. And I think when you were in the situation that he was in, it's almost like there's nothing to lose. And let's remember back to the only similar case that we can draw parallels to is the John Corzine case. And that was what they did as well. Remember, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, it, it, our charter said that we could invest in sovereign debt. Yeah, but, dude, you weren't supposed to invest in, uh, you know, third world emerging sovereign, sovereign debt that's more volatile than biotech stocks here. So John Corzine went back with, yeah, yeah, I was just stupid. And it's proved to be a good defense in the past, and it may actually work. So in, in retrospect, seeing those interviews, I think it was, again, his back was to the wall. He didn't have a lot of options. Trying to influence seems like maybe it was a good idea. Uh, across the pond in the U.K., under a new legislation there, workers will have the right to re re uh, request flexible working arrangements even on their first day of work. So <laughs> uh, James Dyson, you know, the billionaire uh, vacuum dude, um, said the policy shift is, quote, economically illiterate and staggeringly self-defeating. The government talks loftily of the U.K. being a science and tech superpower while doing everything it can to achieve the exact opposite. Um, he is not so keen on everybody getting to choose to work from home, it turns out. <laughs> well, and it's just another regulation that's being layered on. Um, the corporate sector. Now, when Ronald Reagan took over in 1980, I hate to don't want to go on some 
walk down memory lane. But when he took over, Paul Volcker raised rates. We have that going on. Yeah. And remember, he took over 14 years of cost push inflation. The next thing he did, number two on the list, was to deregulate and privatize. And that proved to be one of the biggest things in taking us out of what could be this long-term stagflation where we have low growth and high prices. And if you think that regulations like these don't add to the cost of companies and don't add to the cost of um, cost push inflation, then you're crazy. And we're seeing it in this country as well. Every time something happens, we see all these politicians trying to and, – and when they say, you know, t- windfall tax, when they say – what they're really saying is a walk towards nationalizing all these companies, starting with energy. And uh, that's what we're seeing over there, too. And it's really – it's depressing, and it, it really doesn't bode well for the next decade when you think about the way they're going at this, what's becoming entrenched inflation. Well, and you're – and you're, you're, you know, you're – promulgating these uh, innovative ideas from the state to to operate these companies, essentially, as you're looking at you're staring, you know, uh, headlong into a, a global recession, too. And you're still piling on You're, I mean, Liz Truss, that was going to move in the direction of, you know, the Reagan 80s approach of deregulation. And she had the uh, shortage executive career since that pope who was poisoned. Yeah, no doubt. And that, that's what I'm saying is that at every turn around the developed world, they seem to be wanting more inflation at, at the government level. And that's in our country as well, too. Just think about the $1.2 trillion stimulus bill that's just starting to pay out right now. Think about the Inflation Reduction Act, a highly inflationary piece of legislation that's paying out right now. They're still talking about loan forbearance. In Omaha, they're talking about price capping um, uh, rent. When you price cap rent, like every economist, even ones who've only studied for two weeks, know that capping the price of something um, uh, gets rid of the supply and causes costs to go up, not down. So it's almost like like they don't care one bit and they're trying to make this worse. So for people who, who have studied economics, we, you just sit back and scratch your head going, I don't I have no idea what the hell's going on right now. So today we get uh, the CPI number, tomorrow we get the PPI number, and uh, tomorrow we also get the announcement of the Fed's intent on interest rates. So the expectation is that inflation will tick down a bit again. Um, And what do you anticipate the Fed will do in response? So, so the expectation today are for 7.3% CPI year over year. And this is a, an enormous, of enormous importance. Um, I think, so it almost seems like when you look at the market, the stock market starting midday yesterday started rallying hard and continues to rally hard into this number. So it seems to me that the smart money, I'm doing air quotes, thinks that the number is going to come in relatively tame. Um, the one thing that worries me is that we've had a couple different rug pulls in the world of inflation recently, including a couple of days ago, we had a preliminary PPI. Um, I do think that inflation is coming down for all the wrong reasons. I think there's a, a global recession that's beginning and a domestic recession that's um, you know, continuing. And I think that demand is being destroyed. Uh, the, the issue here is that everybody knows, including the bond market and the Fed funds futures curve, like if you look, I can prove that the market believes that the Fed is too tight, meaning the Fed has rates too high right now. So the the game here is that we see the CPI and see if there's anything in that to convince the Fed that they're too tight. And if that if that number comes in even a tick above that 7.3, if it comes in 7.5, 7.6, I think that the stock market could collapse pretty hard. No, not I'm not talking about another 15 percent lower. I'm talking about a day going lower. But the the key here is not that the Fed that the, the stock market hates high rates. It does. 
but it hates high rates if it feels like the underlying economic condition doesn't warrant those high rates, and that's what we're in right now. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and so so if uh, if it comes in at the anticipated level, uh, or or even below, is there a chance that Powell pulls back tomorrow and it's not a fifty basis point hike? No, I don't think that. I think that they've led they've led us to this. I think it's too late to change tomorrow. But nobody nobody cares about tomorrow. Remember, tomorrow was brought back down from an expectation of seventy five basis points right. just about a month ago. So it's already. We're already pricing in a slowdown slash pause. If today's number comes in at 7.2, 7.1, then we're all we're we're going to start to think that they have inflation going in the right direction that they want it to, and perhaps it, there will be a chance that tomorrow's move will be the last move that they do. I still we're still far away from that. The market's pricing in two more 25 basis point moves. But if it comes in, if this let's say this, if it might, this number comes in 7.1, 7.0, I think we immediately take one of those 25 basis point moves out and then start debating the next one for the next couple of weeks. He is Jim Uriel, Fox Business Analyst and proprietor of Brant's Restaurant in Palatine. Jim, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for having me, Dan. He joined us on turn, the uh, Turnkey.pro Answer Line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy under the weather today. She's out. Hopefully she'll feel better. Be back tomorrow. A decade ago, Denny McCann was killed on the streets of Chicago in a hit-and-run crash that was committed by a person in this country illegally. Uh, His name, the alleged perpetrator, Saul Chavez. And... uh, because of Cook County Sanctuary State status, Tony Preckwinkle, Tony, Tony, Tony Preckwinkle, in her infinite wisdom and the Cook County power structure, allowed Saul Chavez to escape, flee the country, and never be heard from again. Until recently, 10 years in the making, perhaps finally, the McCann family will get justice for their slain family member, Denny. Brian McCann is his brother. Uh, You've heard Brian McCann on the show before. You've seen him on television commercials because he spent the better part of the last decade advocating against sanctuary state and city and county policies, along with other families who have lost family members to people in this country illegally. And uh, he's also uh, done commercials for politicians like Jeannie Ives and Darren Bailey, who opposed sanctuary state, county, city policies, as Illinois is a sanctuary state, Cook County is a sanctuary county, Chicago is a sanctuary city, and so forth. And finally, maybe, 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 we'll get justice for the McCann family. With more on this, where the case stands, where Saul Chavez finds himself, finally, Pleased to be joined by Brian McCann. Brian, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Good to be with you. So you sent out this email a couple of days ago, uh, which was um, surprising just because it's been so long and because we know what uh, immigration enforcement is like in this country. Uh, 
Um, but it was positive news, a long time in the making. So tell us uh, about Saul Chavez and where we stand today. Yeah, the news, uh, I guess you could say it's good news. Uh, I got a phone call Friday, roughly 4 o'clock from uh, Ann Sotomayor from Cook County. She's going to prosecute Chavez. She said uh, Chavez is in the air, being escorted by Steve Molesky from the Chicago FBI office, and he's going to they're going to touch down at O'Hare at 6.59. That did, in fact, happen. I talked to Steve uh, Sunday, and all went well. They got him through customs, and uh, he's in Cook County Jail. And just yesterday, we had a, uh, I guess you'd call it a preliminary hearing in uh, in Cook County, and uh, Anna briefed us on what was going to happen, and uh, the judge... Uh, Kenworthy in her courtroom um, told Chavez Chavez was uh, quarantined because I guess when you come in from out of the country as a quarantine so he was on a video camera seemingly rather docile uh, unable to speak English so an interpreter she told him what the judge said that he would be given a public defender and the charges uh were that uh, he you know he 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 failed to show up for court eleven it was eleven years ago not ten okay and the violation of bond and uh, they added reckless homicide this time uh, on top of the aggravated DUI which was what the charge was before um, and then there's going to be another hearing on the twenty first uh, in uh, the same courtroom and the same judge's courtroom, and uh, all indications are that it's everything's going to work out, and he will be uh, found guilty. And I remain somewhat skeptical, however, because of what happened 11 years ago and right. the political winds in Cook County never failed to surprise we uh, we we citizens. But uh, the prosecutor seemed to think it would. Nothing odd like that would happen. So, I'm. How did how did how did his capture happen? And do you think it would have happened? Would it have been on the FBI's radar to uh, find Saul Chavez wherever he was? Well, if, if I, not for your family's efforts. Uh, I, I must. This Steve's the third FBI agent assigned to the case in these 10, 10, 11 years. Um, the others seemingly were aggressive. They have a fugitive unit in the Chicago office, and these guys, they, they kept me apprised. I would call them every year or so, six months, and they said, oh, yeah, we're on it, and we've got agents in Mexico looking for them, and it seemed hopeful, but it wasn't until Steve called me last spring, March or April, that, that he said, you know, it looks like we're getting pretty close. So he had a sort of confidence in his voice. And uh, they finally got him, what, about three months ago. And uh, he said it's going to take a, a little bit longer because he has an, a, there's an appellate process in the Mexican 
authorities, and that apparently was denied, and Steve flew down and and got him. I, why, you know, I must, I, I did get a little angry a year ago. I, I, I couldn't find him on the FBI's most wanted list. You know, I went on the computer, and he wasn't on there, so I, I called the FBI office, and Steve called called me, and I didn't know him at the time, and know all of them at the time. He said he, he was assigned to the case. He says, "Oh, it is on it." You know, I'm not sure what what why I couldn't find it, but I could not find it at all. So I wrote a letter to Ray and uh, Mayorkas. Uh, Mayorkas took it off of his list too. The DHS had a most wanted list, and he was taken off that list. And then I look I look in the FBI, and he was taken off that list. So that made me suspicious. So I, I bugged him, and he, all of a sudden it appears. So oh, that's uh, it interesting. should be easy to find. So I don't know if there's anything funny going on or not. All I know is that the principals involved have been very uh, efficient the last few days. So I, well, so so I mean, you know, John Cass has written columns about uh, this case, your brother's case. Uh, going back a decade uh, when you were still at the Tribune and since uh, uh, writing at johncastnews.com. Um, I mentioned the profile that you've brought to the case. So so that question about if you, you know, what's your sense, and maybe even you've had this discussion with federal law enforcement, if you hadn't stayed on them, if there wasn't profile brought to this case in the media, do you think uh, Saul Chavez is in a Cook County jail today? Well, I like to think my... Uh... My letters and emails and phone calls and all the rest was was helpful. Uh, they they probably won't won't agree, but uh, I did what I did, including bothering the senior senator from Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, who said he would look into it. I never got anything any feedback from him. I did get a call from a staff person, and she was useless. <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, he walked out of a hearing I, I gave in D.C. That's how interested he was. <clears throat> but uh, I don't know. I, I, I you know we 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 filed a lawsuit with Judicial Watch. I don't know if I told you that, and that didn't go anywhere because Cook County court system. It was a mandamus. Mm-hmm. Lawyers understand all that mandamus mm-hmm. talk. We weren't looking for any money. We were just looking to force Dart to comply with the ICE detainers. And Judicial Watch, to its credit, did their due diligence and through, uh, I guess, FOIA requests, got all the data. And this is going back seven or eight years and how many ICE detainers were denied in Cook County. And it's in the hundreds. And that was just over one year. I can only imagine it's in the tens of thousands in recent years. If I were a mayoral candidate, I would dig out those numbers and use them in this campaign. Because if, if 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 judicial watch's numbers projected forward are are accurate, and I have no reason to believe they were they're not, there's probably well over ten thousand detainers that have been denied by Cook County. Well, that's a, that's crazy. These guys ten, are felons. Right, ten. So that's ten thousand people in this country illegally who've committed crimes. Uh, ICE wants them detained, and Cook County won't acquiesce. Yes. And Cook County is just one of, what, about 300 uh, sanctuary jurisdictions in the country. In major cities, every every major city that I'm aware of is sanctuary now. So just do the, try to do the projections. Millions, perhaps. 
I, you know, you're part of this uh, organization uh, that includes other families uh, who are similarly situated to yours. They've had a family member killed by a person in this country illegally. Tell us a little bit about that organization and uh, sort of what you've learned over the last decade, it, you know, being involved uh, in the fight for justice for your brother and then these larger political policy issues. Yeah, it's called Advocates for Victims of Illegal Alien Crime, aviac.us. Uh, we have a website, and we always welcome a little bit of help, uh, aviac.us. We had a meeting last night, and uh, we meet uh, every other week on, uh, over the phone, and uh, I briefed him on today's uh, interview, <clears throat> and, and I went over what I just went over with your audience. We, 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 we work with other victims, and there's, uh, in fact, a few months ago, we had dinner with uh, Steve Salvi out of Cleveland, and he, he chronicles all of the victims in the country by pouring over news, news accounts, and, uh, because you can't get accurate figures from the government, so he, Steve does this on his own. So, so it's, it's astonishing how many family members like my own have gone through this over the years and, and we're, we're, our lament of late is that it doesn't get the attention now the former president brought our 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 cause to the attention of the country and it was largely reported in conservative media not in mainstream but lately our cause has been largely forgotten so part of our meeting last night is what we're going to do about that. We, we're preparing a letter and a mailing of vic with victims' booklets to every Congress member uh, and new Congress member as well because, as you know, the Congress is going to change. And we like to think that the uh, Judiciary Committee, Homeland Security Committee, will become very active in this cause, at least in the House, so we were strategizing last night on what we might do. Most of us have gone to Congress multiple times to testify, but we haven't lately for obvious reasons. But well, we and we'll and and he, and here's what you're up against with this administration. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, yesterday at a White House briefing had this to say about uh, border processing. Take a listen. So we do have estimates of how many encounters there are at the border on a daily basis. We have processes and procedures in place to identify those individuals, to process them in an orderly fashion, and then to do what is appropriate based on that processing. And we have believed that that system uh, is a system that does an effective job of being able to determine who is coming across the border and what the right way to deal with their case is. Yeah, this, the system does an effective job. There have been one million gotaways in this yeah. country since Biden took office. Try to get Tom Holman on your on your. No, call. I know we've had him. He'll, yeah, we've had him. He'll he'll set him straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll, he'll set him straight. The uh, other the other issue that. We're not involved in, but we become allied with is the fentanyl families. Mm. Uh, Federation of American Immigration Reform has recruited them into their camp, and that, that's astonishing what those families have gone through, the whole fentanyl issue in, the, in a kind of an odd sort of way. They've, they've taken they've been more, more 
tragic than ours in a, in a strange sort of way because it happens to young people. But it's, it's crazy. Before we let you go, I just wanted to, to give you the opportunity again to tell uh, Denny McCann's story, uh, but who your brother was and then what happened to him on that night, uh, hopefully uh, finally getting justice more yeah. than a decade later. Yeah, it was uh, Logan Square, not far from the famous General Logan statue. He was calling on a uh, a friend, uh, a, a client. He was a insurance, uh, commercial insurance broker. And it was a Mexican restaurant, oddly enough. And who was and this guy would prepare a certain brand of soup. My brother had a heart condition for him, and he was that was where he kind of hung out frequently. In his, he lived up there. Anyhow, he's crossing. Uh, Kedzie, I guess it is. I think it was Kedzie. And anyhow, Chavez was four times the legal limit alcohol impaired, uh, hit him and dragged him better part of a block and uh, ran over him twice. And fortunately, uh, a young man, uh, also of Hispanic origin, chased him down with the help of an off-duty cop, and they, they grabbed him and... Uh, he, he, he was he was arrested. Um, this was around seven o'clock on June uh, June eighth, two thousand eleven, and uh, we we were notified later that night by CPD. <clears throat> but we were we were assured uh, by Cook County prosecutor at the time that uh, he this detainer would be would be in effect it would hold hold him not to worry about, because we asked her, can he postpone? Oh, no, no. She explained what a detainer was. I didn't know what it was. And, uh, but uh, Chewy Garcia and Tony Preckwinkle and a few other, but eight or nine other people on the county board thought otherwise. And that September passed the ordinance, and uh, we were never told. And uh, the prosecutor apparently wasn't ever told. So, um, so the Sunday before Thanksgiving, twenty-five thousand dollars was was brought to the on a Sunday morning, and Chavez walked out. He is Brian McCann, a brother of Denny McCann. The organization he's with now, AVEC.us. You heard him mentioned for similarly situated families. Brian McCann, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you've done uh, a great service for your brother and his memory and getting justice for him, in addition to so many other families, including those that you work with at ABAC. We appreciate your time, uh, as always. Thanks again, Brian. Thanks so much, Dan. Appreciate it. Bye now. And Brian joined us on the Turnkey.pro Answer Line. This is The Morning Show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law for 30 plus years running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank. Gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois. But you can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan To have a taxpayer pay, no doubt Not a matter of if anymore but when 
moving out. I said, when you moving out. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy not in today. She's under the weather. Hopefully she'll be back tomorrow. Uh, that theme music means it's time for our weekly confab with Ted Dabrowski, president of wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Before we get to Ted, this op-ed from Maurice West. He's a state representative out of Rockford and a card-carrying member of the Race Hustling Caucus. And the Race Hustling Caucus, that's the Democrat Socialist Caucus. I don't care, black, white, Latino, Asian, Race Hustling Caucus, without exception. He writes in the Rockford Register Star, allow me to share my truth with you. Oh, boy. Uh, Any op-ed that starts with my truth rather than the truth? Yeah. Any conversation that starts with my truth rather than the truth? And, of course, he goes right to his identity. I'm a black man, a husband, and a dad. This is all about the Safety Act. I know how it feels to be judged before my mouth opens simply because of my dark skin and large physique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's uh, responding to the Winnebago County State's Attorney, Jay Hanley's op-ed concerning the substantive criticisms of the Pritzker Purge Law, the so-called Safety Act. This is prior to any of the amendments that were affected last week, signed into the Safety Act uh, 2.0 by Pritzker. (laughs) And uh, Hanley wrote recently, I regrettably probably continued to to do this uh, foment um, antagonism in a way that I do regret. It's not going to be a purge. Yeah. So Jay Hanley trying to middle the issue there. That's where most prosecutors are. Uh, Jim Glasgow and a few others provide notable exceptions, but most prosecutors are political cowards. Let's just say it. And Jay Hanley appears to be one of them. He made substantive criticisms of the Safety Act consistent with Jim Glasgow and Democrats and Republicans, 100 of the states, 102 county state attorney. And now that it's over, now he's, oh, you know, I, I should have toned down my rhetoric. No, you shouldn't have. Stop being such a pee hat. You're a law enforcement officer. Stick to the issue of the law and its impact on enforcement and public safety. No problem. Don't get backed down by race hustlers. Pee hat. Because here's the reaction you'll get from those race hustlers, Jay Hanley and other P-hats. A lot of Republicans have their P-hats permanently affixed, too. Maurice West, it's hard for me to accept the walk back from Jay Hanley because the misinformation that was spread about this legislation strategically led people down a path to think of dark-skinned people being let out of jail to destroy our community. A community. Once you ring that bell, you can't unring it. Nonsense. And, of course, he cites the papers to which I'm affiliated with, and it was misinformation. Right, it's not misinformation. It's who's in prison and who under the Safety Act in its previous iteration was going to be let out of prison. Not because of their skin color, but because of what they did, their behavior. Is this such a difficult distinction to make? No, it isn't. And he writes, Maurice West, now let's all apologize and pretend that all is well. No, there's no apology coming. Not from me. Not from those cook, those state's attorneys, county state's attorneys that are still litigating 
the case in Kankakee County Circuit Court to enjoin the implementation of the Safety Act, including Safety Act 2.0, because it provides marginal improvements to a terrible piece of legislation that would have and will still, maybe not to the same extent, bring Cook County lawlessness to the rest of the state. So spare me the moralizing Representative West, professional race hustler. He uh, he writes, I get it. It's politics, and this is an occupational hazard in this arena. And I'm still standing. Oh, he's such a hero in this story. So he says. But to those of you who are not elected leaders, I humbly ask that you consider your source moving forward, even if that source is not me. Exactly. Do consider your source. Consider your source. Um, the papers that we put out, Still not challenged on the merits, just smeared as misinformation and racist and so on and so forth. Consider your source. Every other, just about every other outlet in the state. Verify the words that are coming out of my mouth are valid before we share misinformation. Let's not be influenced, but informed. Yeah, we're we're verifying. And, uh, of course, the race hustler is not only, it's not even a question of, a purveyor of misinformation. It's just straight up racial agitprop. And until uh, some folks in this state, particularly in the Republican Party, can locate a backbone and speak plain truth to these race hustlers, it's going to get worse. So we'll see. We'll see what the impact of the Safety Act 2.0 is if it goes into effect, if those county state's attorneys who consolidated their cases in Kankakee County are not successful in enjoining the Safety Act 2.0's implementation. The Wall Street Journal editorial board opined on this, too. And unlike professional race hustler Maurice West, they actually did a little bit of compare and contrast the same way Wirepoints did. Other states that have moved to no cash bail, like New York and New Jersey. And what do they find? Is that is that uh, misinformation? Is that racist? To look at what New York did and what the impact has been since they were well ahead of us. New Jersey the same way. We've been well ahead of New York. We know because there have been studies as to the impact in New York State. What's the impact? A higher incidence of crime just as we've seen in Cook County with the electronic monitoring program and the turnstile justice that is so popular among Kim Fox and the Chicago Dem power structure, Preckwinkle, Evans, Lightfoot. So you can get backed down by a hustler like Maurice West, or you can stand your ground and go toe-to-toe. Ted Dabrowski will stand his ground and toe-to-toe. Go toe-to-toe. Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. And so the uh, Journal, they had a little bit different take on Maurice West. I'm not accepting anybody's apology. Well, um, no one's offering him one. Well, yeah, what's fascinating about you know, Maurice West and, and others who, who criticize you know, the complaints that we made, guys like you and us made, um, is you know, it, it just begs the question, did they ever read the law? And, and I would bet that most most of them never read the law, and, and you can't glance at it. You have to read it and, and find its flaws because the flaws are there. It's written so poorly, or it was written so poorly, but that's why all those holes were there. And what's fascinating about all this is, you know, we made the laundry list of things that were wrong. They said, the other side said, we were wrong. 
misinformation and all that. Well, you go back and look at what they fixed last week. Every one of those things we complained about, guess what they fixed? That stuff. Not, not the major stuff, but they fixed all those things we talked about, you know, the, the crimes that weren't going to be detained and all that. They fixed them. Why? Arresting tras- uh, the ability to arrest trespassers. Trespassers. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. The, 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 uh, the standard for detention, uh, a threat to the community is acceptable, not a specific identifiable individual. The threat, uh, the uh, standard for uh, police pursuit, not a specific individual threat, but a general threat to the community. These are, uh, these are important fixes. Yeah. They improve it. And the only reason that they made those improvements is because of people like us who were ridiculed and called racist by people like Maurice West, but they did it anyway. And now Maurice West wants an apology. Pound exactly. So, so they fixed all that stuff. What's fascinating, the second part is fascinating, is that guys like Maurice West, they love to talk about this, but they ignore who the victims are. And if you look at, you know, yeah. particularly Cook County, but I'm sure it's the same in Rockford. I haven't analyzed the numbers in Rockford. It's the blacks who are the victims. You know, they're the they're the majority of the perpetrators, but they're certainly the majority of the victims, especially when it comes to murders. And so, I, you know, what I don't get is where are they on the side of the victim and protecting the victims? Because, you know, a lot of this, you know, bail and, and, and a lot of the criminal justice um, positions that we've taken are to defend the victims. And so uh, guys like guys like Maurice West are absent in protecting their own their own victims in their own communities. And uh, the the wire points uh, dive on this in Cook County. You found what with respect to defendants freed before trial? Yeah, and of course this is this is the own da- the, the you know, data coming from from uh, you know the Chicago team. But you know, fifteen thousand of those released you know on on on, on uh, release where we don't go out and per- perpetrate another crime. Now, of course, not all those crimes are are, are violent crimes, but a big share of them are. And uh, you know, this is kind of the the whole broken windows problem is that you start letting people do. These, these, you know, quote, petty crimes, like, you know, like maybe steal $500 worth of, uh, of value uh, from, a, from a store and they, they get out on, you know, misdemeanor. Well, guess what? That invites more crime. And that's, that's why we have this revolving door in, in Chicago. I mean, just to, again, underline an exclamation point this. Between 2017 and 2022, 2017, when Tim Evans reduced the use of bail in Cook County Courts, 15 thousand defendants freed before trial were charged with new offenses 15,000 in five years right yeah and, and, and nearly 3,000 of them were classified as violent offenses so you know 1,600 were weapons offenses and so you know we, we complain about you know police misconduct and any police misconduct is bad right but any police misconduct is bad but we complain about one or two and here we are allowing people to get back out and create 1,600 weapons offenses, 3,000 violent offenses. It, you know, it matters. And so, what, I mean, it, what's your, what's the sort of the general wire points take on Safety Act 2.0, assuming that it does take effect in Jan 1? Right. You know, I, I think, you know, again, all we can look at, and it's hard to know, because it's hard to know how all these judges will react. What we do know is that you know, the whole purpose of the other side pursuing these reforms is more people being released, right? Their whole goal is to have fewer and fewer people held uh, before trial. And, you know, that should always be the goal, everything else equal. But, uh, you know, if you look at Cook County as our, as our, our guide, and if you look at the pressure and, and the, you know, the whole racist pressure, that uh, equity pressure we're under, you can imagine more judges, I think, will end up releasing than they should have. And, 
that can only mean more crime and, and you know more more victims. And, and we'll have to find our way out of this, you know. But we have to wait and see what happens. We have to wait and see what the damage is. Um, you know, one state's attorney told me that this is a, a massive experiment. Uh, you don't you don't go from a, a long-term bail system and immediately just end it and go to nothing, and 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 see what happens. And that's what it is. It's it's an experiment uh, with people's lives. And we know whose lives those are going to be. It's not going to be, you know, the, the the people on the leafy North Shore. It's going to be. Uh, you know, black families in in uh, in the inner city who are going to bear the brunt of, of crime. Uh, on another topic, uh, you've uh, written up a piece that um, we've reached another milestone in Illinois. I want to memorialize this: one thousand days. One thousand days we've been under Governor Spalding's emergency exec orders per COVID. Yeah, thousand days. I mean, they, you know, nobody. You know, we had one, one uh, I think one TV station covered this. You know, it's the 37th time. Uh, you know, he, he does them in 28-day increments. He has these disaster declarations. It's the same one the Governor Pritzker did back on March 12, 2020, and he just keeps repeating it. 102 counties in disaster. I have to continue to have executive powers uh, over over Illinoisans, and and that should scare people on on many you know on many fronts. In particular, if these COVID numbers pop up. And uh, he wants to, to reimplement uh, different kinds of controls. But, um, you know, the big driver is he keeps counting on more and more Fed bailout money for things like food stamps and Medicaid. And, uh, you know, I, the, the, the Wall Street did a, a good piece on this, saying it's, it's a battle between getting people back to work or keeping them on welfare. And, you know, Pritzker's certainly chosen the welfare route. He wants more and more money. Uh, our food stamps are almost at record highs. Our Medicaid is at record highs. So our, our dependency in Illinois is at record highs, and um, the people out of work were the worst in the country with the highest unemployment rate. So um, we're, we're, he's running a, a horrible show. He's getting away with it. Nobody's talking about it. We're trying to raise the, you know, trying to raise the uh, the issue. But uh, yeah, it's a thousand days, and at some point, people need to connect the dots between those failed policies and and our our joblessness and our increased government dependency. Highest unemployment rate, lowest bond rating, highest combined state and local tax burden, uh, highest or second highest, depending on New Jersey, uh, property tax burden, uh, highest unfunded pension liabilities on a per capita basis. Things are going well. Stay the course. Yeah, got it. Yeah, good, good news. <laughs> Ted Dabrowski, president of org. all things Illinois policy related. Ted, thanks as always. Thank you. And he joined us on the turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it. Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, KJP, Green Jean-Pierre, the White House spokesman, was asked about uh, Musk's tweets, not the Twitter files, because she won't answer questions about the Twitter files, particularly not about suppressing the Hunter Biden story, Hunter Biden laptop story. But uh, she was asked about Musk daring to tweet anything critical of Tony Fauci, the sainted Tony Fauci. And uh, this is what she had to say. Count with me. The number of times she uses the word dangerous. 
uh, these attacks, these personal attacks uh, that we have been seeing are dangerous uh, uh, on Dr. Fauci and other public health professionals as well. Uh, are, they are disgusting and they are divorced from, uh, from reality. And uh, we will continue to call that out and be very clear uh, about that. Again, these are incredibly dangerous, these personal attacks that we are seeing. Uh, Dr. Fauci has served under seven Republican and Democratic presidents. We cannot forget that. Uh, he has given, he has given uh, his almost entire career to civil, to civil service uh, public ser as a public servant. Uh, his work on infectious disease from HIV AIDS to COVID has saved countless lives. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that he has, uh, you know, we, we are fortunate, I should say, that he has devoted his career uh, and his life uh, and his exceptional talent to the America's uh, public health, to America's public health. And that's what should be uh, discussed right now. That's what we should be thankful uh, to him about. And again, these are incredibly dangerous and should be called out. I'll leave it there. Uh, I, I counted three times dangerous, the word dangerous. And I appreciate that Karine Jean-Pierre is giving us guide rails as to uh, what can and cannot be discussed when it comes to Tony Fauci. You are allowed to compliment him, not allowed to criticize him. Compliments are welcome. Criticism, dangerous. Probably threat to our democracy. Uh, Elon Musk was in San Francisco, called up on stage by uh, Dave Chappelle. And uh, you want to talk about dangerous. That was a dangerous move by Chappelle, although Musk seemed to enjoy the audience's reaction even and especially perhaps the boo birds take a listen Um, but, of course, that's not going to be received well, certainly not with good humor by the humorous left. You're only allowed, conversely to Fauci, you're only allowed to criticize Elon Musk. You're not allowed to compliment him because he is a threat to our democracy. As so Karine Jean-Pierre described, he's dangerous. For more on this, you know, a little discussion about the Twitter files, too. Please be joined by Daniel Henninger, deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Dan Henninger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you, Dan. Uh, what about uh, Elon Musk's, the danger Elon, Musk's, uh, Elon Musk presents, sort of uh, taking the mantle from Trump and trolling people like Tony Fauci? Well, uh, you're exactly right. Uh, the assumption here seems to be that uh, one hardly knows how to say it, that public speech only is allowed to go in one direction, and that if uh, people speaking in public go in the other direction, that is to say, criticize not only Anthony Fauci, but anything the progressives or the Biden White House uh, is doing, 
then they are uh, accused of engaged in dangerous or even violent speech. Uh, it's you know this is a very large issue, Dan. What we're seeing here across the board is uh, an attempt <clears throat> on the left to basically drive certain ideas and certain discussion out of the public square to suppress it altogether. Something that's <clears throat> really quite unprecedented in the United States. And uh, I hope Green Jean-Pierre is aware of the exchange, for instance, between in 2020 between Dr. Fauci and uh, Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, in which uh, they were talking about the Great Barrington Doc, uh, Declaration, which was the uh, document signed by a large number of scientists taking issue with the extreme lockdowns that Dr. Fauci was proposing. And uh, at the NIH, Dr. Collins said this is extraordinarily dangerous, and couldn't we get a statement out really quickly out there to undermine their premises? And lo and behold, something did quickly appear in the mainstream press attacking the Great Barrington Declaration scientists, which were, who were pushed out of the public discussion. So uh, you may ask, Dan. Including by Twitter, by the way. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, You know, Donald Trump is far from the only person who was shut down by Twitter and social media. Uh, Comments on, say, climate change have been suppressed. And indeed, uh, COVID and the whole idea of whether we needed to be locked down and masked to the extent that we were. All of that was suppressed by social media sites like Twitter and Google. Uh, it's a very insidious, very insidious process that has been taking place here in the last several years. Well, and, and the other thing, too, I mean, I just, you know, Tony Fauci and his, he served this number of presidents and and uh, public health and the AIDS epidemic and the COVID and he saved all these lives. Uh, OK, well, that's that's one view. But I mean, if you want to examine the substance of the record in terms of his management of AIDS, his management of COVID, there are certainly a lot of substantive criticisms that could be leveled against him. And by the way, were uh, by the gay community back during the the AIDS epidemic. And obviously, there are so many issues where he has said one thing and then said another and then try to recast what he said at one point or another Um over the course of the last couple of years. I mean, the idea that just he, he he was there for AIDS and he was there for COVID and he made pronouncements and he made decisions and they cannot be questioned. They can not be scrutinized. I mean, that that's not exactly a statement of accountability at the highest levels of government. No, it's not. But, uh, you know, if, if nothing else, uh, Dr. Fauci is a textbook uh, uh, example of a highly skilled, high-level bureaucrat. I mean, they are so good at soft-pillowing any criticism of them. There's always some contingent reason why they did what they did and why they are beyond criticism. Uh, The thing about COVID was that Dr. Fauci was front and center, standing there on the stage with President Trump throughout the first year and essentially driving this country's policy. We know what that policy was. It was to uh, for people to stay home, to mask up, uh, and to lock down. The U.S. economy, Dan, was locked down for well over a year. And it was a big event. And in retrospect, you think we would want to revisit what Dr. Fauci and the Centers for Disease Control did. And possibly there were some things for which they should be given credit, but there's 
no way you could come through an experience like that and not have made mistakes. And clearly, one of the biggest mistakes, for example, is locking down school children for as long as they have been. That has done clear damage both to their educational attainment and to their psychology. We're going through an extraordinary flu season right now. Why? Because people were locked down and gained no immunity over the last two years. And now all those viruses are coming home to roost. Why is it not possible for the White House press spokesperson to understand that we need to have a conversation about those issues rather than accusing those who want to have that conversation of engaging in dangerous language? You know, the uh, Twitter files were now in installment five with Barry Weiss's uh, uh, yesterday. Barry Weiss has the vehicle for the distribution. And I know that the handle is, oh, there's nothing to see here. And from from right and left, it's like, oh, we know all this. All this has already been argued and uh, and debated, uh, much of it dismissed or accepted. But I still think there is an immense importance to this because it's always nice to uh, know what the truth is in comparison to what you suspected it was. So that's helpful. But also, too, even at Twitter, on the positive side, during the previous regimes at Twitter, you see um, debate among the Twitter minders about things like taking Trump off Twitter, like banning him from Twitter, including one uh, apparently Chinese-American software engineer or censor who said, you know, I, I, I'm a little uh, hesitant on this, world leader, this doesn't meet our criteria. You know, as somebody who came from China, I know what it's like to live in a repressive state. I don't want to be party to that and that debate that happened internally. So, I mean, even things that are encouraging that there were sort of intellectual dissidents in those discussions about the decisions Twitter made on content moderation. I wonder what your perspective is and on the importance of the release of these these uh, files. Well, I agree that the comment by the Chinese American employee, but I mean, not wanting to go back to the Chinese system, that really jumped out at me as well. Uh, there is one aspect to this, Dan, that I think is really worth focusing on, and that was uh, one of the things that um, caused Twitter back during the election to take down the New York Post stories on uh, Hunter Biden uh, for a period of time. And that was the statement put out uh, by the former U.S. intelligence officials led by James Clapper and John Brennan and some 50 other uh, former intelligence officials suggesting that this uh, uh, story about Hunter Biden, quote, has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. And we know as well that Twitter was in discussion back and forth with the FBI over what it should be doing with some of these postings. John, that, that, I mean, Dan, that is a very troubling uh, development that social media companies are talking to national security agencies uh, like the FBI on a regular basis to try to direct their coverage. We do understand that the Russians are out there running bots on social media, which is a problem on its own. But the idea that they should be getting guidance on what articles from uh, legitimate U.S. news publication should be posted or not, it, is, it was a very, very troubling development. And I do hope the House committee looking into this uh, open up that so, question of what Clapper and Brennan were doing. 
so when National Security uh, Council spokesman John Kirby says, hey, these are private companies, they make private decisions, and of course there are going to be these conversations between law enforcement and intel agencies and so on and so forth, just in it sort of good housekeeping type conversations about the potential for uh, misinformation campaigns from foreign adversaries. But hey, hey, these are private companies making uh, independent decisions. You don't buy that. I, I don't. I think it raises a serious question. Uh, First Amendment violations, uh, free speech violations, do have to come at the hands of public authorities, city, state, federal government. We understand that. That's how the Supreme Court judges First Amendment cases. But something is going on here about the relationship between private companies like Twitter and Google and uh, the pressure that they are getting from public agencies like the Justice Department or the FBI that I think, uh, Dan, is pushing us into a kind of a gray area in terms of the First Amendment. I don't believe that those companies should be able to hide completely, hide their free speech suppression completely behind the idea that they are a private company, not when they're allying to the extent they are with uh, national security agencies. Uh, you wrote a recent column that, uh, in response to Merriam-Webster declaring the word gaslighting as the word of the year, that uh, instead it should have the word of the year should be identity. And you talked a little bit, sort of in parallel, um, the issue of identity that's at bar in this country uh, to the issue of identity uh, in play in the uh, with respect to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I- explain what you were getting at. Well, what I was getting at is that uh, clearly what Vladimir Putin is attempting to do in Ukraine is to erase Ukrainian national identity completely. I mean, they have uh, uh, looted uh, museums there of all of the artwork by Ukrainians. I believe the United Nations uh, estimates it attacked at least 200 uh, institutions of national heritage in Ukraine. And... I do believe, Dan, this is one of the reasons the Europeans are supporting the Ukrainians as uh, strongly as they are. They recognize that Russia is, again, trying to absorb another independent sovereign nation completely uh, inside its own envelope, and that includes its national identity. Uh, that is a big subject these days. We argue about it in the United States. We argue, but They argue about it in Europe. Uh, I think it relates a little bit to the conversation we were just having previously about mm-hmm. whether the American left is trying to create a new American identity and push uh, those of us who disagree with it out of the conversation. I'm not going to go so far as to equate that with what Putin is doing in Ukraine, but the subject of how a nation's identity is uh, erased is something that's very much in front of us right now and for which the Ukrainians are carrying the battle. He is Dan Henninger, deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Do check out his column, Putin's Heist of Ukraine's National Identity, we were just discussing. Dan Henninger, thanks as always. Appreciate your time. Great to talk to you, Dan. And he joined us on the turnkey.pro answer line. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy uh, out today sick. Hopefully she'll be feeling better and back tomorrow. 
Um, Mississippi State coach Mike Leach, one of my favorite college football coaches uh, because high-powered offenses. You remember Texas Tech, perhaps. Uh, and he's just a colorful guy. He uh, suffered a heart attack and is in critical condition. And so the football world and everybody should be praying for Mike Leach for his recovery. And just um, colorful guy. Like, give you an example. You know, we like the colorful coaches here. Um, Mike Leach describing um, players not playing hard. Instead of playing hard and getting a first down and getting a play, then, you know, you want to <clears throat> sit behind a, a, a shade tree, eat a fish sandwich, and uh, drink a lemonade with your fat little girlfriend. <laughs> uh, I wonder if that was the sort of colorful commentary, uh, post-game press conferences and uh, post-game huddles, even in private, that uh, – John Holosek offered when he coached Loyal Academy, which was right up until just a few days ago. John Holosek is a four-time state champion over 17 years at Loyal Academy. Of course, a lot of people know him from starring at Marian Catholic and then University of Illinois and then in the NFL with the Bills and the Chargers and the Falcons. And uh, he joins us now to talk a little bit about uh, high school football in this day and age. John, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, but I just did get a notification that uh, he did pass away. So. Oh, he, he did. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, that's terrible. Tremendous loss. Yeah. Did you Did you know him by chance? No, no. But just reading his uh, his bio about how he wrote a book about Geronimo, the Native American, American yeah, and, yeah, and then had had taught a class on warfare or insurgent warfare. So amazing guy. He, he was and and yeah, and a colorful guy too. I mean, he would he's like one of those guys. It seems to me from afar that players would love to play for, even when he's criticizing them for not playing hard, or hanging out behind a tree with a fish sandwich and their fat little girlfriend. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's just an interesting visual, but anyway. So that's uh, sad news about Mike Leach. Um, let's talk a, a little bit about your career, and particularly as a coach at Loyola Academy and Will Madden, and what that was like over. Uh, 17 years you know you only had I think like 209 wins to go to catch Frank Lente at uh, Mount Carmel I don't know why you quit so early on but but uh, your time at Loyola Academy well I, I started when I had a one two and three year old and now my uh, my youngest is going to graduate so it's kind of a appropriate I've always thought like this would be the kind of the year and then you know as you move on and you, you see you know our, our legendary coach uh, John Herster, I think, passed away at like 52 from a heart attack. There's stress involved, like, like everything. But uh, sure. I just uh, I, I thought it was um, you know, a nice time for me uh, to step away. But man, what a, what a great uh, great family of people and uh, the support. Uh, the, the student athletes at, at, at Loyola know how to win and know how to work, and the families are behind you. So uh, certainly, the, the assistant coaches that are is going to stay and, and the, the administration now that uh, really dedicated to athletics. So I felt like it's all moving the right way. It, 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 if, if there's any time, it would be this, this year that, that I'd step away. How, how has the game changed from the time you played and even the time you started coaching with, uh, you know, the, the issue about concussions and, and parents being more reticent to allow their, their boys to play college, to, to play football at any level um, what, what was the, how did that impact, uh, your time from moving from playing to coaching? Um, well, uh, first I think, you know, the, the 
concussion um, issue came up really strongly when, in, after the movie and uh, right. about five years ago. And the numbers started decreasing a little for us, not a ton. Uh, generally like 100 freshmen around come out for freshman football. And then it started dipping a little bit. But then after the pandemic, people understood like, okay, our, we need our, our kids to get into uh, some physical activity. So they came back uh, strong. And that's uh, and I noticed that across the uh, the grade schools also. So it looks like there's a resurgence there. Um, so I think football's in a good place. And I think the education uh, from coaches uh, about the concussions, about the small hits adding up, uh, it's out there. And so I think everyone's smarter and more dedicated. Uh, I was telling people this year, people cannot believe that our varsity practices, we did, we never went to the ground, not one time. We had one, like half the scrimmage in one practice where we actually tackled. Other than that, you're not allowed to fall down. You don't go to the ground. You, there's no um, full contact. We train tackling up to that point. And, you know, your feet, your hands, you know, you go through it in like the drills. But it's not it's not kind of like heavy contact like it used to be. So I think football's in a great spot because of the education. Um, when I was playing, it was, you know, I in the NFL. I remember one one drill where, you know, we're taking on linemen straight on just just to be just to teach toughness. Uh, kind of got knocked out a little bit, and the coach said, "Ah, oh, just take the rest of the the segment off." <laughs> there's no there's no Trainer protocol, involved. yeah, right. Yeah, it was so. so now uh, that that incident would have been, you know, evaluated and probably would have out at least a few days. Um, nowadays, it's so much safer. So the, the game's in a good good spot, I think. Well, that's interesting um, because actually, where I went to school, they don't tackle during the game at Northwestern. Uh, so <laughs> that they've taken it from practice to the actual games. I don't know if you. Well, I don't know about no, I don't know about the, that part, but um, <laughs> Northwest is going to is going to be in a bad spot unless they really get in that NIL. Um, I, I don't think that university has uh, embraced that. And the new rule in football is it's free agency, it's minor leagues, it's not college, it's it's pro. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, so talk a little bit more about that, uh, particularly for uh, families that may have aspiring college football players and D one college football players. What, why, why, why does a, a Northwestern or any program have to embrace an NIL? I mean, there's not that many players that get those uh, deals, are there? Um, yeah, I think uh, Michigan's going to. I'm not positive. I thought everyone on this on the Michigan team is going to get at least thirty, forty thousand like dollars. Oh, that's, really? That that's like the, the that's going to be the standard now. So once they took that lid off, it's the wild west and. You better join it or, or, or prepare to move down the conference because you're not going to get a transfer at any type of you know specialized position that's that's worth it without giving them money. And so, you know, what do you, what do you think about that? What do you think about that move at the collegiate level? Uh, yeah, well, I kind of loved it if I was playing, but uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. But I mean, honestly, the, the the coaches are making ten to you know fifteen million at some you know schools, yeah. and the players got nothing. So it was very uh, you know anti-American process. But now that it's out, it's really a it's it's going to be a problem. There's going to be lots of issues. But uh, yeah, I don't know how they're going to fix it, but it, it's certainly going to cause a lot of strife in a lot of different worlds. I mean, they don't have education for 18 year olds coming in that type of money that they're, they're like the NFL gives 
you know, rookie symposiums and they try to push to, you know, education and financial education, how are they going to do that to 18 year olds that have no idea? And so it's, it's, it's going to have some problems, but obviously, you know, the, the, the concept is uh, smart. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. I mean you, that that uh, that thirty for thirty that ESPN documentary uh, that uh, documented the incidents of professional athletes, even those that made tons of money during the course of their playing career, that go BK uh, within a first the first few years of of retirement. Pretty uh, pretty stark numbers. Pretty depressing numbers. Yeah, that's so. There's 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 that issue, but um, you know, and also like the the predatory uh, people around the uh-huh. athletes. Uh-huh. Uh, the the fact that you you're gonna have a a, a father in the stands gonna start because we already have this, like incidents and we're playing a seven on seven and some fathers yelling go get him and all you know I'm like there's no tackling here there's no contact <laughs> stay up and get him yet and like and you you realize like these parents are are, are so involved in, with their kids moving on and they, you know the the involvement of parents is what I've really seen over the last 17 years when I started coaching, I think a lot of parents trusted and kind of stood back um, and watched. And now it's, it's so persecutory. They're, they're involved in everything. And that's kind of a, a not so welcome change for a coach. Really? I mean, even for you, somebody playing the NFL, I would think you would sort of have a trump card uh, when it comes to, you know, and not to mention winning championships. I would, I would think that the parents at Loyola would, would uh, give you some room to operate. Um, yeah, obviously, I, I think, you know, uh, depending on the coach's qualifications, you do have a little leeway there. But trust me, there's there's a there's a small percent anywhere who are going to think they know better. Interesting. Interesting. So. 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 Yeah. So a, a little bit more on that. So uh, what was it like when you first came to Loyola? Because I, I don't recall Loyola being a real football powerhouse, at least not when I was in school. And um, but but over the last uh, decade and a half, they've become one under your coaching. Well, in the '90s, uh, they won in '93. There was a couple of good uh, stretch runs. Coach Hurster had it going. Uh, he passed away uh, three years. Carl Favaro was a, a great guy, coach, but I think that there was just not so much an emphasis. And so we we came in uh, 2006 and started building from there. Our first year was five and four, and then. I don't think we lost, you know, another season didn't have more than three losses, uh, May four once, but I, I thought it was just a building process of, of getting the kids to buy in the off season's huge, um, making sure they're, they're, they're in shape and running. And, and certainly like my coaches had a great buy-in. We, we watched film more than any school you can ever imagine. So mm. our mistakes off the, uh, on the field are, are, are limited, uh, and treated like a college or pro program uh, a little bit. So I just got a survey back, and um, one of the comments was, uh, coach can can have more uh, consideration for family time during the holidays. <laughs> like, well, that's that's the best. If that's the worst thing I did, then uh, I feel pretty good about my job. Yeah, actually, a, a mutual friend of ours said that that one of the real differences uh, was the homework piece of it, the, the watching film, um, both you as a coach as well as the players to understand and understand the mistakes that were made in the game and bringing that, uh, you know, homework football aspect to the high school level, which is which, you know, seems like eminently sensible. Well, it, it's a lot of work because, you know, there's there's lots of uh 
weekdays where you fall asleep on the computer at 10 o'clock, you know, exhausted. And, but you know that the kid is never going to search for answers. Uh, the, the best thing about being a coach is putting that kid in position to succeed and feeling confident that you did your job. And I was never going to let that happen where a kid was like, well, I, I wish I would have known that. I wish I would have mm-hmm. done, you know, they're going to get all the information and more. Um, and I think it, it shows when our kids go to college, they think, you know, they're super prepared and it's a, it's a great way. And I, you know, I think our assistant coaches um, at Loyola just completely bought in and, and realized when you're, when you're working there, it's not for the, not for the dollars. You're going to earn a very little wage when you consider the amount of my hours, but uh, the reward is, is so much, so many other things. And, uh, you know, I, I, I saw that when I just did retire, the, the amount of thanks and gratitude coming from my former players is just overwhelming. That's great. So, I mean, you know, you're still a young guy. Um, it, I'm sure you've gotten offers previously, and I'm sure you're getting offers currently. Do you want to coach at the next level, uh, college or the pros? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of open right now. I'm just, I'm just relaxing. I don't have a resume. I don't push it. I'm, I'm asked anybody that, um, about a certain position. I'm, I'm trying to like go through the holidays without doing, doing much, but I'm certainly open to something, um, in, in any type of, uh, work. I, I know I'm going to coach at some point, if, even if it's volunteering somewhere, uh, sometime in my life. But like I said, when you jump, when you jump into something, so, you know, 100% fully com- committed, you know, you, you, you need to step back and take a break once in a while, and I think that's what I'm looking forward to uh, this year. He is former, not just retired, Loyola Academy high school football coach John Holosek, four-time state champion. John, thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations on going out on top. That's always a nice way to do it. Appreciate your time. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. And he joined us on the Turnkey.Pro Answer Line. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.